0: Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here to worship with you all again this morning. Uh, One brief note before we get into the message. We had announced two weeks ago that we were planning to take Sister Lois Friesen in as a member here this morning. And due to changes of schedule, uh, she is not able to be here this morning. And so we are planning postpone that to a later date, Uh, not sure when yet, but just wanted to explain that. So as was mentioned, this morning is our council meeting service, and I want to start with a question for the message this morning. The question is, are you passionate about the church? Anyone who says that they love Jesus Christ, anyone who says that they appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for them should be passionate about the church. He himself called it his church and declared himself to be the builder of it. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Jesus identified the church as his and that he would build it. Colossians 1.18 says that he, being Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have the preeminence. So he is also the head of the church. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that he is the cornerstone and are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The church is also the bride of Christ, preparing for and awaiting the time when he will come to take his church, to claim his church, to take it to be with him forever. We're told that in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify or make holy and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You see, the church is so much more than just a social club or a uh, an organization that uh, helps to reform our lives. You know, if we're, if we're in Christ, our lives are going to be reformed and being reformed but it's so much more than that but rather the church is a body of believers who have surrendered to the lordship of jesus christ surrender that causes us to live lives that are radically different from the world around us and i say radically different because when we serve christ When we follow his ways, we will be radically different from those who are not. You know, many churches have gotten off course and have tried to soften the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Scripture, to try to make church uh, easier, we could say, But that is is counter to what we're told there in the verses I read from Ephesians 5. Because we're told there that Christ's plan for His church is for it to be holy, without spot or wrinkle. You see, Christ's purpose for His followers, I was pondering this a little bit last evening, Christ's purpose for His followers wasn't just to forgive them. You know, we we look at, at Christ as offering forgiveness for our sins, and that is so important. But Christ's purpose for us as his people is so much greater than forgiveness. Because Christ's purpose for his followers is to cleanse us from those things that would be a spot or a blemish in his church. And he gives us the power through the aid of the Holy Spirit to do that and to live above the sins of of this life, the sins of this world. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So, that He might redeem us from or out of all iniquity, all everything that would could potentially defile. So I say all that to lay a groundwork for what I'd like to talk about this morning. <clears throat> Council meeting is a time that we set aside before communion to consider our relationship with the Lord. It's a time where we examine ourselves and we make a statement of where we stand with the Lord and with the church. And we do that according to the instruction that's given in Scripture to examine ourselves. that We would not take part in communion unworthily. So I was pondering a little what is council meeting about? It's about each of us as individuals, because each of us as individuals are called to examine ourselves or it's called to give an account of ourselves. But as each of us makes up a part of the church, really council meeting is about the church as well. And so this personal examination is about us individually, but it's about the church. And we could say that as the individual goes, so goes the church. You know, there's that old saying as, as I think it's, somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the saying is, as the, so goes the home, so goes the nation, or something like that. And so I think we could say that as the individual goes, so goes the church. If we're lax in our personal lives, we're going to have an effect on the church. So our personal lives have a part in either building and bringing honor to the Lord through His church or doing the opposite. So I want to consider a little how we as individuals affect the church. You know, there's a lot of terms that we use to describe individual churches or church groups. These aren't always used fairly, but we use them. Terms like liberal or conservative, permissive, legalistic, stable, apostate, biblical, Y'all could probably add a few more to that. We, we have these terms that we use to describe the church. And how do we, why why do we, or how do we determine how to attach those labels? Not always, but often it is because what we observe in the people who are members or attendees of that church. And so, how we individually live our lives determines somewhat what label our church is going to have. So I was thinking about these labels and I boiled it down to three three categories that we can put a church into. And I want to look at these three categories And think about how we affect where, which of these categories our church is in. The first is a drifting church. The second is a legalistic church. And the third is a stable church. And I want to go to scripture and look at some examples. Uh, Some of these are from the Old Testament, and so it isn't... uh, speaking of a church as we would call it today per se, but it's still speaking of God's people. And we must learn from history or we will repeat history. So I invite you to turn to Judges chapter 2 for the first scripture. I want to look at a drifting church. I would like to read from Judges 2, starting at verse 6 through verse 13. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went, every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance, in Timnath-Herez, in the mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gaash. And also all all that generation were gathered under their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, which had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, gods of the go- gods, excuse me, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. So here we have the account of Joshua. Passing off the scene, Joshua was—he uh, was a great leader. I think a lot of times we focus on Moses and we don't consider how remarkable of a leader and a tremendously godly man Joshua was. But here we we see that Joshua had led the children of Israel into the promised land. They had conquered the land. They had settled and taken possession of the land just as God had promised. And it tells us here that the the people served the Lord until Joshua, and those people around him, the older older ones, and Joshua's, uh, his contemporaries we could say, that when they died off, the people quit serving the Lord the next generation didn't carry on the zeal for the Lord. And it seems that they started to look around at their heathen neighbors around them, and they ended up going into idolatry. And I don't have a timeline for this, but it would seem that uh, wasn't too long after, I'm guessing maybe within the within. 50 years of, of the children of Israel taking possession of the land that God had done all these miracles for them had brought them into this land of, of that flows with milk and honey and they turned their backs. They started worshiping idols. And the issue, I believe, was drift. What happened to them didn't happen in a day. It happened gradually with gradually making changes. It may have been caused by complacency. It could be that before they had taken possession of the land and settled, that they had a goal they were striving for. And once they didn't have that goal before them, maybe they just fell into complacency. It may have been caused by them not taking God's commandments Seriously. Saying, well, you know, that's what God's commandments say, but it's not that important. We don't know exactly what caused them to drift. But they did in a short time. And you know, drift isn't something that's confined to the children of Israel there in Old Testament times. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 as well. I'd like to read uh, here in Revelation 3, we have uh, in chapters 2 and 3, we have uh, the message from the Lord to the seven churches. And I want to read from two of these accounts, two of these messages to the churches. Revelations 3, 1 through 6, 1st. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that they are that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received an how thou hast hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith under the churches. And then drop down to verses 14 through 19. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then thou... So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Here we have two ch- churches that had drifted. And the message from the Lord to both of them is to repent, to turn back to where they had drifted from. And you notice these churches had similar issues. Says the church of Sardis had a name or a reputation that they were alive. But what did Jesus say? Remember, Jesus is it's his church. And as Jesus looked on, he told those people who had a reputation for being alive. He said, You're dead. The Laodicean church said that they they had riches, they had wealth, they needed nothing. They were, they were living the, the dream we might say. Yet God said, the Lord said, I'm, going to, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth because they weren't on fire for Him. Both of these churches had somehow drifted. They had missed the mark, mark of God's purpose and intent for His church. You see, the church isn't about our reputation with others. It's not about how we look as people look in on us. But it's how we look as Christ looks down on us. It's not about how we feel about ourselves, like the Laodicean church that said, we have need of nothing. But rather it's, what is our reputation with God? Are we living according to His standards? His standards are what matters. It doesn't matter what other people think. And are we zealously performing the work that he has called us as his church to do? So that's a picture of of drift. And see, you can drift, and you can look at yourself, and you can look at your church, and you can say, Yeah, we're pretty good. I don't need anything. Yet Christ looks down and says, You need to repent. (laughs) invite you to turn to Matthew 23. I want to consider a legalistic church a little. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for turning the Mosaic law into a legalistic religion. And there's a lot we could read and talk about in this passage. I just want to read a few verses what Jesus said in verse 23 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to, not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make... Clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, clean, cleanse thou first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are likened unto whited sepulchers, which indeed are beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. (laughs) Jesus was condemning the Pharisees here because they were focusing on an outward appearance that looked good, but they were neglecting what he calls the weightier matters uh, that were matters of the heart. He says that on the outside, you look look good. You're doing the right things. But on the inside, he said they're full of extortion and excess. And so what I see in that is that they were doing the right things outwardly. They were saying the right things. But they were living for self with the outward as a cover-up. You know, these men had the same Mosaic law that those people that followed Joshua had. The people that followed after Joshua, their direction was that they drifted away from God into idolatry we could say they they went away from God and into the things of this world. Here, the Pharisees took the same Mosaic law and they put a strong emphasis on obeying that law, but yet they were serving self. You see, it was a hard issue. It was an issue of serving self while still trying to uphold God's law. God's law wasn't the problem. The problem was a problem of their heart. Notice in verse 23, Jesus didn't condemn them for what they were doing. He condemned them for what they were not doing. We can be quick to see a hypocritical situation like this. And we want to throw out the the good along with the bad. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're doing the right thing, but you're neglecting some other very important things. And you know, it can be much easier to put on a religious front to do the right things, to say the right things, without an inward crucifixion of self. And I think that that was, was what Jesus was condemning here with the Pharisees. Father Mapple was a character in Herman Melville's classic, Moby Dick. And he preached a message to the sailors. And he said this, And I'm going to read this twice probably because he says there's some things here that are somewhat profound. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. I read that again. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence He oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves where the hardness of obeying God consists. And I believe that that statement sums up very concisely the difficulty of truly following God. Because to be a true follower of God, we have to do, as as Father Mapple said, to disobey ourselves. And I believe that that is why we tend either towards drift away from God and towards the world and the things of the flesh or we tend towards legalism which is an outward cover-up for feeding the things of the flesh. It's a lack of, of personal crucifixion of self. So the third option that I mentioned this morning for a church is a stable church. I'm going to give some synonyms for stable to help us understand what we're talking about. Firm, secure, solid, sound, strong, sturdy, unassailable, and unshakable. Those are descriptive words that I hope can be used for this church. I invite you for several references, first of all, to turn to Acts chapter 2. I'd like to read Acts 2, 41 through 46. This is a picture of... A snapshot of the early church shortly after the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, starting at verse 41. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them unto all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There are several things that uh, I'd like us to consider in these verses that stand out to me about this early church. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Adam Clark commented this. He said they received it, they retained it, and they acted on its principles. We could say that they were doers of the word and not just hearers. We also see that they fellowshiped together. There was a strong support, mutual support, mutual encouragement for each other. It went so far as that they would sell their personal possessions for the good of the body. And what was the result? The result was that they gained favor with the people, they were well respected and they attracted people. There was a magnetism to what they had that drew people in because of the the love, the unity, and the commitment to the body. It stands out to me here that there was not a spirit of individualism, but a spirit of submission to the church of Jesus Christ. It seems as if everyone was willing to give up self for the good of the church. There was a surrender to the authority that God had put in place over the church at this point. And back to Father Mapple's quote, it seems that they were focused on obeying God rather than obeying self. And because of of all that, they experienced joy and blessing and the church grew. And God was honored. I don't think I'm going to turn to it, familiar verses, but in 2 Timothy 1 3 through 5, we have Paul speaking to Timothy of the faith that was in his grandmother Lois and then his mother Eunice, and now was evident in Timothy's life. And what I want to bring out there is that in a stable church, there is a desire and a strong effort made to pass the faith along to the next generation. We need to have a commitment that is so much greater than just ourselves, but it's a commitment and a desire to see our children and our grandchildren and our communities be a part of the church and to experience that blessing. We need to have a vision for the church that's much bigger than ourselves. And then for another last scripture, I'd like to turn to Revelation 3 again. There's a couple examples we could look at. But just read a few verses here from Revelation 3, verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works... Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The Lord was commending the church here at Philadelphia, because they had persevered. He said, you have little strength. And I think that was in relation to how people viewed them looking on. It might not have looked like they were doing great things, but he said, You have little strength, but you have endured, you have persevered. You have not they had not denied his name. They're an example of a church that was that was a church of overcomers. The other two churches that we looked at had an outward appearance and reputation of being alive and well off, but yet Jesus' word to them was repent. And here we have a church that outwardly probably didn't look like it had a lot going for it, but they were the ones who had been faithful. And I wanted to bring these examples because these examples tell us that the strength and stability of your church isn't determined by man's standards. It's determined by God's standards. Doesn't matter what our status is with those looking on, what our reputation is, but it does matter what our reputation is with the Lord. Now back to thinking of our council meeting here today. As I said It's about us as individuals, but as we as individuals make up the church, it is about the church. And we've looked at three options we can have. A drifting church, a legalistic church, or a stable church. And I think we would all say we want that stable church. But the reality is that only as we as individuals commit to that, will we obtain it? If you want a stable church, but you don't want to commit to the church, you don't want to put forth your full efforts, you're undermining the ability of the church to be a strong, stable body. Stability is brought about by everyone buying in It's a term we use to describe being committed. Or another term we might use today is being all in. But taking our spiritual life in a serious way. It takes personal dedication. It takes dedication to reading and studying God's Word. It takes a personal denial of self a personal surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and a surrender to His church. It takes a commitment to the standards of the church, a willingness to uphold brotherhood agreements. It takes a vision for the future, a vision for our families, a vision for our communities, a vision that prompts us to desire to promote our church, and what we have to those around us. And brothers and sisters, this morning, you as an individual are going to promote one of those three options for your church. Without a personal commitment to the things that promote a stable church, you are committing yourself to either promoting a drifting church or a legalistic church. My desire this morning is that we would all put our whole heart into promoting a church that is strong and that is stable. But yet I feel in our conservative circles that there is an extreme danger of moving either direction. There is a tendency towards drift. And there is a tendency towards legalism. So we must focus on a full commitment to the right things for the right reasons. I often think that we as individuals don't take seriously enough how our personal actions and our personal level of commitment affects the church. And it's not, it doesn't affect your church, it affects Christ's church. It affects how we are representing ourselves to those looking on how we're representing Christ to those looking on. And I'll readily confess that I haven't always done my part to promote a stable church. And I regret that. One thing that I've heard said many, many times over the years is that, well, the church says we should do this, but I don't have a conviction for it. And I want to say this morning that if you are not willing to, to, to practice something that you don't have a conviction for, there is about a 0 to 10% chance that you will ever develop that conviction for it. And I'll give an example of that. When I was younger, I would read my Bible because I knew I was supposed to. It was difficult. But with time, I developed more of an understanding of the blessing of it, and today I am firmly convicted that it is an essential practice for the believer to have a personal daily time of spending time with God's Word and seeking Him. And you know, if I just said, well, I don't really have a conviction to personally, you know, to read my Bible every day. I'm just not going to do it. I would never have developed the conviction that I have today. We must often practice before we develop a strong conviction. When we excuse ourselves by saying that we don't have the conviction, we're excusing ourselves from the privilege of growth. Spiritual growth and developing convictions. I had to think of Paul and what he said that if it offended his brother, he would never eat meat again. Did Paul have a conviction that he shouldn't eat meat? No. But Paul had a firm conviction that he should, that there was a place to lay down self. For the good of others. Those are the types of things we need to do. We need to be willing to lay down self for the good of the church, for the good of our brothers and sisters. So this morning, I urge you to take seriously your personal commitment to the Lord and to His church, of which you're a part. We're going to express our standing with the Lord and with the church. And as you do that, this council meeting, I want you to remember that your level of commitment to the Lord and to his church is going to have an effect on the stability of this congregation. And I ask, are we willing to, as Father Mapple said, to disobey self, to to go against what self wants, in order to promote the church of our worthy Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are we more passionate about His church than we are about ourselves? Are we willing to seek the good of others in the church rather than our own good? Are we willing to not neglect fellowshipping together in supporting the programs of the church not just for our own good, but for the spiritual good of the body. Did you know that, that, that it's good for us as a body to meet together and to worship together? It's good for me individually, but it's good for the body as well. It blesses us all and draws us together. Are we willing to make that a priority? And are we willing individually to uphold, to promote, and defend the standards of our church? and to work on developing convictions where maybe we don't have them, but to work and develop those convictions that build the church. Brothers and sisters, let's all pull together and let's each do our part to build and maintain a stable church. Because in doing that, you and I are going to reap a tremendous blessing. But more than that, The Lord Jesus Christ will receive the honor and glory.